0: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's a weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet, conservation, and lots of other opportunities. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor, podcast host, a part-time farm guy, and I also have a number of people in my family and lots of friends who are dependent upon the hormone insulin. And we sometimes forget that it's a hormone, but it's a necessary messenger peptide in the body that has a number of functions in controlling blood sugar levels. And it's no surprise that it's become virtually on the tip of everyone's tongue because so many people use it. But there's also some unusual politics and maybe supply chain issues around insulin. And we've seen a lot of discussion about price, especially as it... As it. Changes from one place to another. The cost in the UK versus the cost here, for instance. But we're going to talk about that today with our guests. So we're speaking with Dr. Cameron Owen. He's the founder and CEO of RBIO. and uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Owen.
1: Oh well, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm not a doctor, although oh. uh, the highest the highest degree <laughs> I, I got was uh, was my master's. But but I appreciate the sentiment.
0: <laughs> well, you know, you I I, I read on the website. Something about graduate school, and I must have thought that you had finished that other degree. So, uh, but so certainly did read about this because you figured you thought about this question of insulin while in grad school at Johns Hopkins. Was that right?
1: Yep, absolutely okay. correct. Okay, um, so I,
0: I, I so I read something about that.
1: <laughs> I, yes,
0: yes, yes. So I
1: I, I, I love your intro. Uh, I I think that was a great way to to frame the the opening of, of this conversation, and I'll actually take it. One step further. Uh, so yes, I, I completed my Masters of Healthcare uh, in at Johns Hopkins um, out in Baltimore. And one of the things that we talked a lot about was uh, diabetes and specifically, you know, insulin. Uh, and so, like I said, your your intro really did a good job of framing. You know, I'm sure some of the things that we'll talk about here, some of the the challenges associated with that, and then I'll come over the top and. And and hopefully, give you some of the solutions to some of these problems, and and what we're doing in our bio, and how we're going to help solve them.
0: No, that's perfect. It's funny because people ask me all the time if I use a script, and I just go off the top of my head. So I'm lucky I hit the nail on the head this time. (laughs) You
1: you got it. You got it.
0: (laughs) But but let's start out with with kind of the obvious question: Why do we need to even worry about exogenous insulin? Why do we have to give ourselves injections of this stuff? And how does that Demand change in the U.S.
1: Sure, sure. I would say very, very simply, uh, one of the reasons why we need to to focus and, and really worry about this uh, is simply due to the amount of uh, diabetics, really specifically type two diabetics, that we have here in in the United States, uh, and unfortunately, we're seeing that similar type of trend uh, around around the world as well. So, uh, just to throw out some some early statistics, uh, about one in ten people in the United States today uh, have been diagnosed with diabetes. Uh, unfortunately, that number is projected to increase to about one in five people by the end of this decade. So uh, unfortunately, this problem is is not going anywhere uh, and is, is getting worse and worse. So uh, just from a pure numbers perspective, there's there's certainly a lot to worry about.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about insulin. So we know now that it's a recombinant molecule, but it wasn't always that way. So back in the good old days when it wasn't one out of 10, it was probably one out of a hundred that needed insulin. How did we historically derive insulin um, before biotech?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, I'll I'll come back to that just in a second. You know, I I actually grew up in small town, Indiana, just north of Indianapolis, um, and if you're from Indiana, you know that Eli Lilly uh, headquarters is is in Indianapolis. They were one of, if if not the first companies to to really uh, target insulin in their in their product lineup. Uh, traditionally, the way it was done uh, was to harvest it from animal sources. So after you would slaughter a, a pig or a cow, uh, you could you could take their pancreas and and this is a gross oversimplification, but essentially put it through a blender and, and purify out uh, the insulin that, that you were looking for. Uh, now, thankfully, we, we use much more, uh, not, not quite as crude methods in order to, to get the insulin that we need, but that was, that was how it started. Uh, and I know that, and, and don't quote me on these numbers, but I think it was something like two tons worth of uh, animal pancreas would be used to purify out only eight ounces of, of insulin. Uh, and even if I'm not hundred percent perfect on those numbers, uh, just the pure scale uh, of, of that, of a lot to to a little uh, is, is quite shocking. Uh, and, and to your point, you know, back when this was happening, you know, a lot of, there really wasn't the, the epidemic of diabetes that there is today. So going through that uh, process was, was okay for, for the time. Um, but, like I mentioned earlier, you know where we're at right now and the demand that's being placed on uh molecules like insulin is 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 pretty staggering
0: yeah it's uh I don't think it would even be possible today. I don't think there's enough pancreases out there
1: no i don't I think you're probably right <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's true and and imagine what would happen to the price of hot dogs you know that was uh, that was always the joke but uh <laughs> But uh, so today most of it's recombinant and I remember my mom um when she was alive was a recombinant uh was a user of humulin and I used to always point out to her on the tube the little r next to the r dna uh you know derived from an r dna source and um when you do this or when you when when you have a product like humulin is it actually the final form of insulin, or is it the pre-processed form? So, for the listener, insulin is actually encoded in the in the genes by something called pre-pro insulin. It actually has two liter sequences that are processed off in the in the process of making insulin. So, is, is that what's actually produced when you make the recombinant insulin?
1: Yes. So, you would you would uh, produce again to your point, what's called a pro insulin, uh, and then there needs to be some. Uh, enzymatic activity to essentially cut out a certain part re- and then repost it back together for that, that finalized product. So if you look at something like uh, a cumulin they've, they've already gone through and, and done all that uh, for you. Now, normally that process happens in the body, but it, it can certainly happen uh, in a lab or, or can be done um, in vitro, if, if you will.
0: Yeah. And I guess I kind of glossed over the main part. I wanted to have the folks from Eli Lilly on the podcast who did the first uh, versions of insulin way back in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. And um, I couldn't get anybody. And I don't know if the Grim Reaper bit beat me to it, or if uh, or if they just didn't feel like talking <laughs> about it. But I, I really wanted to have them on. So let let's go a step backwards. How is most of this insulin produced now? Is this all done via... Um, bacterial expression of the human gene in fermenters, or where are we?
1: Yeah, to, you're, you're exactly right there. There's a couple different ways that, that you can go about it. Uh, I, I would say some of the larger producers certainly hold what they're doing, uh, those, tr- those t- trade secrets a little bit closer to, to the vest. Um, but you know, certainly in, in a recombinant type of manufacturing, you could either use a, a bacterial vector or uh, a yeast vector. Uh, now, there are pros and cons of, of doing either or. Obviously, bacteria are, are prokaryotes and um, yeast are eukaryotes. So the, the biological functions of those single-celled organisms are, are slightly different, but that's certainly uh, the process that you would that you would go about doing, you know, kind of, for lack of a better term, hijacking uh, these cells, uh, you know, metabolic functions in order to, to get the final product that, that you're looking for.
0: Okay. And, and what happens if somebody can't get insulin when they need it, especially a type one diabetic?
1: Sure, sure. Uh, well, you know, in short, there's, there's not really a whole lot that you can do. You know, if you need insulin to, to stay alive and process the, the glucose that's circulating in, in your blood and, and you don't have the ability to do so, you know, eventually you will go into a, a, a diabetic coma. You know, un- unfortunately, we've, we've all read articles in the news of people who have been forced to ration insulin due to cost, and I'm, I'm sure we'll probably touch upon that uh, later later in this show here. But you know, there's really there's really not a whole lot that, that you can do. I mean, there's there's certain drugs that could stimulate or at least attempt to stimulate your body to to produce it, um, but if it doesn't have that ability to, you know, you kind of sol, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. And then it can be tragic. And I, I know I know friends of mine, people, a guy I used to fish with is a type one diabetic who won't go fish alone because if he had a problem out there with getting insulin or, you know, or, or had a sugar event, he, you know, could be fatal. And he didn't want to wake up in Mexico dead, you know, on a on a, on a boat floating across the Gulf of Mexico. Sure. Uh, so it is a real serious thing. And, you know, I don't mean to joke about it because it, it you must have this. And the reason I set that up that way is because there has been a lot of discussion lately, maybe even uh, controversy about price, about if insurance covers it, about supply chains. And so, what's happening there that could potentially imperil lives and ability to get insulin?
1: Sure, sure. I'll, I'll touch upon uh, the price and then we'll, we'll come back to the supply chain because that's certainly, I think, where we at Our Bio really. Uh, fall into the picture and, and can solve a lot of problems there. You know, I, I think your average user or, or listener, rather, or somebody who reads the news would say, "Wow, you know, the price of insulin has shot up quite significantly, even though you know we've we've known about insulin for the past hundred years and had ways to to manufacture it." Um, you know, one of the one of the things that that has happened is these larger firms. We'll take a, a quote generic insulin or a type that your body naturally produces, uh, switch out a couple amino acids here or there, which ultimately changes the pharmacokinetics and dynamics of of how that works. Um, now there are certainly advantages of this, right? If you need a slow acting insulin or you need a fast acting insulin, and, and there's there's things that go into that, uh, and that's really where some of these these pricing issues, I guess, emerge because you know by doing so you're essentially Launching a new drug onto the market and have to go through clinical trials X, Y, and Z, and those those can be uh, quite costly, to to say the least. Uh, I would say from a supply chain, this is certainly where we come in at our bio and, and what we're looking to to help solve. Just given the demand uh, and increase of of the people who need insulin, not only here in the United States but abroad, uh, you know the current supply are, are is not going to be enough moving into the future, so we need to find some some new ways, methodologies, or just simply new new production streams in order to solve some of some of these challenges. And, and again, that's that's where we come in.
0: Well, where is most of this manufactured now?
1: Well, uh, I'm sure as as you and, and your listeners would probably uh, assume, a lot of the production of any sort of pharmaceutical compounds tends to happen offshore. And there's a, there's a wide variety of reasons why that's the case, which would, which could probably be a, a whole new show for you uh, in its entirety. Um, I know that Eli Lilly, for example, does have a, a large manufacturing facility uh, in Indianapolis where uh, they they can produce a lot of these compounds, but, but certainly, uh, you know, there's a lot of offshore manufacturing that, that does occur.
0: And, but does that, kind of set up a potential barrier for a supply chain that, you know, and maybe I'm just kind of, you know, making up a problem where none exists, but it seems that if you're counting on other countries to produce a product that's necessary here, you're kind of putting things in a perilous situation that any kind of an import blockade, or, you know, you can imagine with one out of 10 people having requirement for this drug uh, that that puts us in a kind of a precarious national position.
1: Oh, certainly, certainly. You know, just just from what you said right there, I think you could, uh, I think you could be a salesperson for for what we're doing because that's one of, you know, the, the biggest challenges that we're that we're looking to solve. You know, even, um, you know, to to your point, to send everything offshore. Should there be a, a blockade or a, a natural disaster, or for example, a worldwide pandemic and supply chains grind to a halt, and if you don't have the domestic Supply side, in order to ramp up production or, or produce this yourself, you're certainly putting yourself in a very uh, difficult position uh, when when that happens. And and uh, I think we saw a little bit of that last year, and, and and even really leading into this year. I mean, I can't even turn on the news today uh, without seeing some something about supply chains being disrupted, or ports are overstocked, or X, Y, and Z. You know, we can't get. Uh, holiday toys on the shelves for Christmas this year because of some of these supply issues. Well, you know it's one thing not to have you know teddy bears and things like that on on uh, you know on Target's store shelves, for example. Uh, it's another thing when you have multiple millions of people in in your country that rely on these medications really to to live and, and without them they you know certainly are put in a bad position. So uh, that's that's uh your point, you know, we certainly don't want to find ourselves in in that position.
0: Now, that's a really important point. So, thank you for for really digging down on that because that's the stepping off point where we start to talk about your company. And I just am going to throw this in. You know, I I always mention when I book a interview like yours is I don't ever want to make this about a company as much as about a technology because you know I don't want it to become sounds sound like an infomercial, you know, sure. and 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 so I just want the listeners to be really clear. I just thought this was such an important question and a really innovative solution from from this company. And I always just want to be really clear about that because, you know, I'm I'm not paid to do this. I'm not getting checks from companies to serve as their uh, advertising. Um, It's really important that, you know, put that out there because I just am excited about technology that can help people. So that's where we are. So we're speaking with Cameron Owen. He's the co-founder and CEO of R-Bio, and that's the letter R, bio, not O-U-R, bio. That's another company, Uh, R, letter R, bio. Um, This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Have my I gotta talk to someone about this here bioengineered label. It's on my damn Doritos and I'm fixing to catch me some autism if it's full of that GMO nonsense. I'm sorry sir, but that label simply means the product may contain some ingredients that originated from a genetically engineered crop. It's the law that passed a long time ago, and you'll see that label in 2022 a lot. Well, I don't like it. Tinkering with nature is no job for 5G or the Monsantos. There's probably 5G in my Mountain Dew and glyphosate in my Natty Light. Now, what's the story, darling? Well, sir, I guess I'm not sure. I wish there was someone else that could give us some answers. That would be me, Kevin Folta here. I've put together a program to train customer service professionals and anyone that may have to answer questions about the new bioengineered label. The program is performed live. We work through drills, answer questions, and diffuse the ambiguity around this new mandate. I provide excellent training materials and strategies to help your team confidently field the confusing questions your customers will ultimately have. Worse, we expect to see this simple, unnecessary product label inflame a disinformation campaign. That's going to further confuse consumers. Prepare now. Contact me. We'll book training sessions on how to field questions on a bioengineered label, inform your consumer, and clarify the confusion around safe food ingredients. For more information, check kevinfulta.com forward slash services. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Cameron Owen, and he's the co-founder and CEO of Our Bio. And we're speaking about a new type of synthetic insulin, or I should say a synthetic biology solution to the problem of insulin, insulin costs, and insulin supply chains. And I'd like to go back to that again, is that here's something that one out of 10 homes is using, or one out of 10 people is using. And I can't think of a a good analogy of here's something that keeps one out of 10 people alive and it's necessary, yet it's manufactured offshore and supply chains could potentially be disrupted by a national event. Or, you know, you can think of so many different ways that this isn't just a medical problem, but also a national security issue. And so how does... You know, can you can you give me some more information on that? Like, like what was the justification to start your approach based upon that national security question?
1: Definitely, definitely. Um, you know, when when I was in grad school, we, we spent uh, a lot of time looking at at issues that were affecting the the healthcare industry. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I got my master's in, in healthcare management from uh, Johns Hopkins University, and one thing that uh, we always came back to as, as probably the large one of if not the largest issues was uh, our pharmaceutical supply chains um, now this was back in 2017 2018 so uh, pre pre-pandemic times um, and I remember thinking to myself wow that's a that's a significant vulnerability that that we have here um, but in in discussing it with other professors and just contacts in, in the space, nobody really seemed that concerned about it. And, and to me, that always struck me a little bit as odd, you know, okay, well, we've outsourced this to uh, someone else, whether they're friends or foe is, is really not important, but we've outsourced this to other countries for us. What happens if, if that you know, were to break down. And of course, everyone said, oh, well, that's not going to happen. You know, we're all good. We're, this is a global economy. Uh, and then, of course, March of 2020 happened. And all of a sudden, uh, those supply chains did break down and, and the world commerce did did uh, did come to, to a stop. So, uh, and I'll even take it one step further. There was an article posted in the New York Times uh, in September of, of this year, uh, that talked about our our supply chain vulnerabilities, specifically in the pharmaceutical uh, area, where um, you know of the top 100 pharmaceutical compounds that we use here in the United States, 83 out of those 100 have no domestic supply chain. Uh, and and just think think about that for a second. You know, we've 80 83 of the most used compounds here in the United States. We we don't even make. Uh, that's just that's just uh, a little bit crazy to me. So again, you know, uh, for our business, we're we're coming in looking to bring those pharmaceutical supply chains back here to to the United States, and I'm I'm sure we'll we'll talk a little bit more about how we plan on doing so and why we think we we can do so competitively. Um, but but again, eighty three out of a hundred, we just we just gave those away to to somebody else to do for us. That that's just not a sustainable business model.
0: Well, it seems like it has some potential hazards. And as you know, I don't know, it's been tricky to think about during the pandemic that certain things are in short supply, you know, but if I run out of tonic water, I'm okay, you know, and, but if it's a needed medication, this could be really problematic. So with that whole setup, how is our bio position to start to produce insulin to, to meet a domestic medical need?
1: Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, you mentioned the the lowercase R uh, right before our bio. As I'm sure as as your listeners understand, that that stands for recombinant. So there are there are ways to harness the the powers of of biology, really, in order to to do so. Uh, now, recombinant types of technologies have been around for uh, a couple decades at, at least. At, at this point, um, we view ourselves as the next evolution of that. Uh, and, and more of a of a synthetic biology type of type of way. So, uh, without getting too into the, the specifics, uh, the secret sauce secret sauce, if you will of of how we uh, of how we do so. You know, we've we've genetically re-engineered uh, these these microbes in order to really hyper produce and are hyper focused on the manufacture of of these pharmaceutical compounds. Um, and so that's how we view ourselves as, as a solution to this problem and as a way, uh, to, to manufacture this and, and, and be able to solve some of these, these challenges. Um, and, and so that's how, uh, yeah, if you want a little bit more backstory, I could go into uh, I could go into that as well, but I'm definitely not going to give away the secrets of, of how we've done what uh, what we've done to this point.
0: Well, well, we don't need to reveal you know trade secrets, but what would be really helpful is to at least explain a little bit more about how you might make a, a bacterium focus on one given job. and especially since you know Venter and others have really defined what a minimal e. coli is, how does that help you? Kind of hone this bacterium's talents. You know how do you how do you do that?
1: Sure, sure. I'm I'm glad that that you uh, bring up uh, Craig Venter because he certainly was uh, a large inspiration for for how we do what we do. Uh, I think this must have been five or six years ago. Now, remember, he and his team announced that they had determined what constitutes a, a minimal viable organism. So, what genes? need to be in place for this organism to do two things and that's grow and divide and so you know when when they announced that you know there was some excitement and say oh that's super cool but what what can we do with that type of a knowledge uh and for us we said all right well can we can we use that as a a starting point to then say okay if, if this is the base level uh if you will then what, what can we build on top of that uh, in order to get these these bugs, in order to hyper-focus hyper, hyper focus and hyper-manufacture these products? Uh, I'll take it one step further. You know, your traditional recombinant types of technologies could be viewed very simply, and this is, a again, an oversimplification of, of a cut and paste type of a method where we say, okay, we're gonna insert this gene into this organism uh, and and then they're going to produce that. Well, that's that's true to an extent. Um, but anytime you introduce uh, a foreign gene into an organism that's not really designed to express that, much less overexpress that, you're going to run into some difficulties of of manufacturing yields. So one of the advantages that that we know that we have is is by really tailoring specifically these organisms to do really two things. That's produce uh, an insulin molecule and then of course to grow and divide um i think that's where that's where we come into the fold of saying okay you know by doing it this way we're inherently the next evolution of of biological manufacturing
0: oh very cool and i i think that just you know for the listeners If you're starting out with one of these kind of minimized armatures, you basically uh, a minimal E. coli that can just get by and now you're training it to do a specific job. You can see how that might work better than an E. coli that's spending a lot of time on other issues, you know, uh, it, it doesn't need to be worrying about chemotaxis or things like that because it's got everything it needs. It doesn't, Yeah, you know, maybe that's a bad example, but a lot of metabolic functions, you know, in E. coli products that it doesn't need because you're supplying everything it needs. Uh, why waste your time making, having all these extra genes and all this extra hardware that is essentially not being used. So it can focus its time on insulin production. Do I have that right?
1: Exactly. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll make an analogy as well. Uh, I spent a lot of time in my undergraduate in, in chemistry labs. Um, you know, anytime we would, we would uh, do a lab, one of the things that we would look to quantify was the, the quote percent yield that you get, right? You put in this molecule plus this molecule, you want to get A plus B, and then you want to get AB at the end. Um, but inherently in, in chemistry, you're going to get some unwanted side reactions that do occur uh, just naturally. So thinking of that the same way that, that happens biologically uh, is, you know, we want to, we want to minimize or even uh, just get rid of those side reactions that occur because we just solely want these bugs to, to make our desired product, which for in our case is, is an uh, insulin.
0: And so is it more cost effective that way?
1: It certainly can be. And the reason I say that, that it can be is, You know, if you're looking at a commoditized product like insulin, you're really going to be competing on margins. Uh, And if you can simply manufacture more yield than your competitors by using uh, the same or similar methods, then you're going to you're going to outcompete them. Uh, And so that's where I believe our real advantage is the fact that we can manufacture uh, something like insulin at a much higher yield than what's what's on the market today.
0: I see, and so you, what are the current results? Where does it stand now with respect to improvement over previous methods?
1: Yes, yes. So I won't get too into the specifics, and the and the reason that I say that I will throw some numbers out there, but I, I don't want to get too into the specifics. And the reason I say that is, uh, we are we are in the end stages of a uh, investigational research study with Washington University. Uh, the goal of that was to determine if we can. Uh, Increase our yields that we've received to date even more so, and and so far the results are are looking really really good. Uh, and I know that we'll be releasing some more of uh, the results of of that study in in the coming months and, and weeks here. Um, but you know, by by redesigning these organisms uh, this way, you know, we're looking at yields of 100, 200 percent over what's considered quote you know current standard.
0: Okay, so that can translate into cost savings for consumers and, and and also solve that supply chain problem. Absolutely, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. If all goes well, when might we expect 100% American-made insulin? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: well, you know, we do we do have some uh, 100% American-made insulin, as I mentioned, coming from uh, Eli Lilly. But, um, you know, without getting too into specifics here, uh, I've been looking at uh, some spots, some manufacturing facilities uh, in San Diego, that's where uh, I live and where the company is headquartered. Uh, but we've also looked at some facilities uh, in in the Texas area uh, that could be used as a as a manufacturing floor. the The real thing is less about the uh, the manufacture of of this compound. Uh, it's really more about how long does it take to set up the the equipment and the facilities uh, in order to do so. Um, but I think realistically, from the end of this study with, with Washington U, uh, I think we could be up and running and, and making that quote, made in America, uh, insulin, you know, with, within a calendar year. I realize that's an aggressive goal, but, you know, we're setting the bar high.
0: Yeah, but that's really good because we hear about these technologies like the art, like the uh, artificial pancreas, right? Or, you know, replacements to pancreases or uh, gene therapy for for pancreas, that kind of thing. And so this could be a, you know, it could really d- decrease the demand for insulin overall. And so being able to comp- being able to produce it at a lower cost could be a really good, um, you know, one-two punch with these other potential down-the-road technologies.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I, I couldn't agree more.
0: Maybe just one more last question here that's maybe a little more philosophical. I mean, isn't this just a great example of how we can produce something domestically and hire people here if we just think about production differently. And I, I, I think it's important that we still do make things here. And in agriculture, we still do. And that's kind of threatened. But when you think about all the things from you know gym shoes to soccer balls to Tupperware to whatever, all that stuff is made somewhere else. And isn't it really just a nice way to, to try to think of you know, just trying a completely different approach to streamline production.
1: Oh, I, I, I totally agree. Uh, I think one of the the reasons why we don't make more things here uh, in the United States and, and domestically uh, is because we've we've taken taken the route of least resistance, if you will. You know, it's it's much easier to say, okay, well, let's outsource this to foreign lands where the lower where the labor costs are are lower than here in the United States versus actually trying to come up with new and novel solutions that could allow them to stay here and allow them, allow us to be competitive on, on a worldwide scale. Uh, you know, that takes research and development, time, energy, effort. Also, it takes a lot of money to do so as well. Uh, and if it's just easier to move a factory overseas or across the border, then, you know, traditionally that's, uh, that's, what's been done. You know, one thing that, that, that I really love about what we're doing, and to your point, is that hey, we're gonna we're gonna keep this and bring this back here to the United States. We're gonna do so in a new and novel way. We're, we're pushing the boundaries, but by doing so, uh, it's still gonna allow us to be competitive on, on a worldwide stage. And if if you can bring all those things together, then then you've got a, a winning a winning formula for sure.
0: That's no, really good. And I think this is especially germane because insulin, recombinant insulin has been with us for so long now. I mean, it's been, you know, what, 35 or no more than that. Uh, probably almost going on 40 years now. Um, and so this is a really uh, it, it's a really cool thing that this is that this is being done. Do you guys have a pipeline of what you would think of doing next
1: <laughs> yes. Now that is a that is a great question. So you know we've spent the the mass majority of our, of our time talking here about synthetic insulin. Uh, one of the things that we've done with Washington University is is test additional pharmaceutical compounds uh, as well. So we're we're looking at uh, additional pipelines of products, um, and then just projecting it even more into the future. You know. For the past, I would say 20 years, since the end of the Human Genome Project, a lot of the research and knowledge that's been accumulated in genetics has really been about finding and learning about what's there already. You know, What has mother nature already perfected? Uh, the next 20, 30 plus years uh, in biology are, in my opinion, gonna be dedicated to biological manipulation. You know, What can you do with that? What problems can you solve? You know, for us, uh, pharmaceutical supply chains really represent a, a low-hanging type of a fruit. Um, but there's, there's so many other things that you could do with synthetic biology. Uh, and the applications, at least in my opinion, again, are, are truly limitless. Um, and so, you know, we, we certainly don't want to pigeonhole ourselves as, as thinking just pharmaceutical manufacturing. Uh, that obviously represents a, a financially lucrative business model. Um, But but what's next? Right. What what happens next? What can you do next? Uh, And that's and that's to me what what's really exciting.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool. We've had a lot of folks. We've had a number of guests over the years. I think of Beth Hood is a great example where she does has a company that creates a number of enzymes for manufacturing. And what people don't realize is the amount of enzymes that are in everything from your laundry detergent to your cheese to the dyes that make your blue jeans. All these things are very common uses of uh, enzymes that are manufactured at massive scale. And so coming up with better ways to do it ultimately means more choices for consumers, domestically made chemistries, and uh, there's lots of good edges to that. So, you know, it's exciting to hear what's happening with your company.
1: Oh, definitely, definitely. Well, I'm I'm excited to to talk about it. Now, obviously, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm highly biased uh, when I when I say that, but I, I think we're I think we're doing some super cool things, uh, and again, I think we're really just at the start of of what we can use biology to do, and the types of problems that it can help us solve today, and and moving into the future as well.
0: Well, very good. So if people want to see more about the super cool technology, where do they look? On uh, media, <laughs> social media, websites, things like that?
1: Definitely, definitely. You know, we, we got a LinkedIn page. We've got a, a Twitter handle. Uh, our website is uh, www.ourbio.online. Uh, also, uh, for those listeners who are interested in, in learning a little bit more, uh, we are going to be pushing out some, some press releases over the coming months of you know again what we're doing with this with this investigational study and, and what we plan on doing with with the company so you know hang tight you know fasten your seatbelts we're, we're gonna be off for for a fun ride here in, in the next several months
0: okay Well, what's the Twitter
1: username uh, it's our bio underscore pharma
0: our underscore farm okay I'll give you a follow and promote the heck out of this thing.
1: A nice little plug. I appreciate that.
0: No, that's cool. No, Cameron Owens. So thank you very much for joining me. And do me a favor. When you have the next, and I've been saying this to all my guests lately, (laughs) when you have the next big breakthrough, don't hesitate to contact me because I would love to follow up on this. It's always really important for people to hear that this cool technology they heard about in its earlier stages is now landing and changing things for people. So let me know, okay? Definitely. You got it. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write your reviews on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you consume podcast media. Uh, If you're so compelled, throw us a few bucks on Patreon, which only goes to boost media so that we can gain more listeners. The ratings have gone up and things are getting busier and busier all the time in Talking Biotech world. I I just love it. So thank you very much for listening. Tell a friend, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are. But it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast.